I'm Greg Norton, along with Bob Mould and Grant Hart. In 1979, we started a band called Husker Do. And I just went in, and there's, you know, this this sort of hippie-looking guy, you know, barefoot guy in there, you know, just like, what's up? I don't know exactly what I said, but I apparently said something a bit snarky to him about, uh, yeah, you're the guy that got hired instead of me. Do you remember when you are Do you remember... Welcome to part one of Do You Remember, a five-part podcast about Who's Do from The Current. I'm Mary Lucia. In this first episode, we'll meet the band before they became a band. We'll follow Grant Hart and Greg Norton as they grow up in St. Paul. And we'll encounter Bob Mould, a new kid at McAllister College with a flying V guitar and a love for punk rock equal to theirs. Gransberg Vernon Hart was born March 18, 1961, the youngest of three children to working-class parents in South St. Paul. From the get-go, he was fascinated with music and art, as he described to the current's Andrea Swenson in August 2017. I'd always been able to monkey around on a piano that we had in, you know, the basement like so many other suburban families. Then... When I was 10 years old, my brother was killed in an automobile accident. And very close friend of the family approached me and my brother and said, we each had to take on half of my brother's work. For me, that was the musical aspects of my brother's life. And uh, he was a drummer. He was a record head um, And these are all things that, you know, I didn't need to be forced to enjoy them. But uh, I think that was kick in the right direction. I don't know if it intruded upon the stages of grief. It definitely was given power by it. He played a lot of the 60s local classics, like, Liar, Liar, Run, Run, Run by the Gestures. I mean, a lot of old local records. A lot of uh, nationally promoted stuff as well. He didn't own any Beatles, from what I noticed. No Beach Boys either, um, except the single 409. But um, really diverse, real eclectic. I came to know the drums by playing along with these records. I 
I could get away with anything as long as it was associated with drumming from the point my brother, the drummer, died. I took advantage of it at a couple different occasions. As I say, you know, I'm off to practice, Mom. You know, okay, don't be too late. Oh, it might be midnight. Okay. You know, they trusted me, and yeah, maybe they knew, maybe they didn't know. Very tight town where phone calls would be made if you were seen misbehaving in town. Grant was a visual artist as well as a musician. He would become fascinated with the beat generation, later befriending Allen Ginsberg and writing songs inspired by William S. Burroughs. Another stranger part of his outsider sensibility came from Mad Magazine. I don't know if you remember Mad Magazine, but they would have these songs that you could construct from nothing. It's kind of hard to explain, but it was a uh, songwriting device where by replacing lines of the real song with Mad Magazine's lines, you can come up with your own fun song. Grant was always energetic and outgoing. In junior high, his musical tendencies blossomed, and it was there that he formed his first two bands. The first two things were kind of headquartered in the band room at school, like kids that would just get together and jam after. And uh, there was a couple bands inspired by that convenient situation. And we weren't being a band so much as we were playing at being a band and learning what the roles are and, you know, what you needed to do to fulfill them, you know, to get into the philosophy of the whole creative process. As a teenager, Grant became obsessed with records hanging out at Melody Lane, a record store in Signal Hills Mall, and becoming friendly with the staff. I had uh, petitioned the manager for a job, and this is after I had hung around, like, the shop mascot for, it seemed like two years. It was probably a year and a half, but up at Signal Hills Mall. I hung out there, and I think I was attracted to the variety of music and the fact that this fellow, Mark Wheeler, who was running the joint, that he was uh, playing all sorts of different fantastic stuff that I'd never heard before. It was when the uh, first New York Dolls album came out, He was, like, that day he was extremely happy. Uh, A few months later, he asked me to take a ride to Orfolk Jokopus, and uh, that was my first 
experienced like big time record shopping, you know, like going to something that isn't in a mall, something that, you know, doesn't have 60 copies of the newest Kenny Rogers or what have you. In the meantime, Greg Norton had kind of just like been the right man at the right moment and he got the job. Later on, I guess, I I met him in the mall way, and uh, I don't know exactly what I said, but I apparently said something a bit snarky to him about, uh, yeah, you're the guy that got hired instead of me. That was the late Grant Hart. More from Greg Norton and Bob Mould after this short break. I'm Greg Norton, and along with Bob Mould and Grant Hart, in 1979, we started a band called Husker Du. I was born in a Catholic hospital in Davenport, Iowa. My family lived in Rock Island, Illinois. And uh, about six months later, we moved to Omaha, Nebraska. And at the young age of four, we moved uh, up to the Twin Cities. My uh, mother's family is from South St. Paul. Uh, As a matter of fact, uh, my grandmother's house was just a few blocks away from uh, Grant Hart's uh, parents' house. Uh, so essentially, I, I grew up in Minnesota. I considered myself a Minnesotan and lived in Mendota Heights all of my youth. Met Grant Hart when I was working in West St. Paul at a record store called Melody Lane. Uh, when Grant was turned 16, he came up and accused me of stealing his job. I was unaware uh, of the fact that evidently he had been in and had numerous discussions with the uh, manager, Sharon, about getting a job as soon as he turned 16, which she promised him he would be hired. And so then I get hired, and he's like, hey, who's this guy? <laughs> so he comes up, and he's like, yeah, you took my job. And I'm like, who are you? You know. And so I'm like, well, hey, my buddy uh, is the assistant manager. Let's go talk to Bill. And Bill's like, oh, yeah, we could use extra help. So we talked to Sharon. Grant got hired, and uh, Grant and I became really good friends. Like Grant. Greg was already a musician, as he explained to the current's Brian Oak. On my 14th birthday, my mom took me down to Torps Music in St. Paul, uh, which is long gone, but I picked out a bass. I just always kind of wanted to be a bass player, I guess, you know, and I think it, that probably comes from growing up on a steady diet of listening to the Beatles and Paul McCartney and those melodic bass lines. And I was way into a lot of rock and roll from an early age. You know, my sister is nine years older than I am, so I remember when the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, it was a big deal. My brother is four years older than I was, so he was like, hey, Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix, you got to check these guys out. And then also right after I turned 14, I started working downtown St. Paul as an usher at what was the North Star Theater. And across the alley from the North Star was Three Acre Wood Record Store. 1973 was a pretty good year to hang out in a record store. There was a lot of really cool things coming out in the early 70s. And uh, so that's kind of how I got wrapped up into really being into music and wanting 
to eventually be in a band, but it was really, it was punk rock that kind of was the green light where it's like, yeah, you can do this too. You know, all my super talented friends who were great musicians, uh, I guess I was always a little bit too intimidated to sit down and play with them. Whereas all of a sudden punk rock, it's like, I can do this. That was in March of 1978. You know, Grant and I, we, we did become fast friends. Uh, you know, we shared common interests in music. And also, uh, I grew up watching Marx Brothers movies, and, and he was a big Marx Brothers fan as well. Grant had a drum kit, and he was like, hey, well, it's, I'm going to bring my drum kit over to your house. And he and I would sit around and actually just kind of goof around. And Grant actually made business cards and said, our band is called the Electrocutes. I wonder if I still have one or two of those business cards laying around. So... We never played any gigs. We never wrote any songs. You know, we just would sit around. He'd play the drums. I'd either play around on the Farfisa that Grant also brought over or plunk around on the bass. Grant actually was in a band called Train. <laughs> uh, when I met him, Train was a Beatles-only cover band. Uh, actually went and saw Train once. They played at Dracula's uh, Bowling Alley. Uh, actually, I, I think I have the gig poster for for that show and uh, Grant played keyboards and sang backup vocals I had a car and Greg didn't, and uh, I ended up driving for the both of us, and I was getting something from him. He was getting something from me. You know, it was all right, but uh, there was a bit of a, I want to hang around with my cool guy, the guy that drives me places. <laughs> <laughs> He's like a year and a half older oh, than I. Oh, you just had the car. Yeah, the car's worth three years. We would uh, ride around smoking pot and a, with a bong in the front seat. And, yeah, we'd go to different parties. Uh, friends of ours were uh, students at MCAD.
I was out of high school. I was actually taking a uh, guitar repair class in at the Red Wing Vocational Technical School the year after I graduated from high school. So I was commuting back and forth between Mendota Heights and Red Wing, going to school, and got into punk rock. And a lot of my classmates didn't understand this whole punk rock thing. I remember playing uh, Elvis Costello's radio for him, and this one classmate was just appalled about the line, I want to bite the hand that feeds me. How can, how can he say that? <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> so uh, 1978, working in a record store, there were tons of punk rock records coming out. You know, we just had this voracious appetite for everything that we could get a hold of. And, and uh, Grant and I started driving to downtown Minneapolis and going to shows at the Longhorn. Uh, Grant had no problem walking in and into the Longhorn. The legal age was 18 in Minnesota at that point. Uh, we went to a lot of shows for two years. Grant never got carded. The first time he got carded at the Longhorn was actually on the night of his 18th birthday. Wow. Walking in the door, they're like, hey, uh, we got to see an ID. I'm like, it's timing, right? It's all about timing. Grant and Greg weren't the only ones discovering punk rock in 1978. Another Longhorn regular, Bob Mould, had just moved from upstate New York to St. Paul to attend McAllister College. I spoke with Bob. I mean, I was born and raised in a small farm town in upstate New York, a town called Malone. Mm -hmm. And it was the county seat of Franklin County, which was one of the most impoverished counties in New York State. Mm. I, you know, was a huge music fan as a kid, you know, 60s, mm-hmm. 60s pop and psychedelic music, folk music. And, you know, my dad played sax in the Air Force and, you know, sang in the choirs. You know, I had a little band when I was in fifth grade. There was no name. We just did. It was me and another kid. We did a talent show, and I had one of those, uh, one of those plastic chord organs, like an M and A chord organ. And I used to write songs about my dog and flowers and stuff. So that's going to be my next album. Great. Looking forward. But looking back, <laughs> even in Malone, I had a friend named Steve Bissett, and we used to get together, and you know, we would do the whole Kiss drag and do like the Winter Carnival float, you know, with Kiss with dry ice and all that. You know, it's a small town, and you're bored, and you know. You're just drinking and smoking pot and trying to find things to do. Mm-hmm. So listened to a lot of heavy metal with my friends and then found out about punk rock real early on. And, uh, you know, got to see the Ramones when I was 16. And that sort of sealed the deal for what I wanted to do with my life. You know, not unlike Kiss, who were, you know, this larger than life comic book band. The Ramones were this larger than life gang You know, when I was a kid, it's like these four guys in leather jackets standing against a brick wall with this word, you know, taking up the entire cover, Ramones. And I'm like, what is this? And I heard it. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is real music. This is everything I loved about surf music and about pop music and about, you know, Spectre Wall of Sound. And it's all right here in 14 songs in 31 minutes or however brief that album was. And. You know, I just sat there and learned that record and learned the second album, and then I got to see them, and I was like, I have to do this. One of the albums that I bought 
right in my senior year in high school, I went over to Burlington, Vermont, to a record store and bought the first Suicide Commandos album. Their picture was in a scene roundup in Rock Scene magazine, which I used to get religiously. I would mm-hmm. go to the drugstore and, and buy Rock Scene, and I would buy Circus. But Rock Scene, I mean, Richard and Lisa Robinson, I mean, and that's how I learned about this scene. Mm-hmm. You know, the punk rock stuff. And so I had some of the, you know, I had Ramones and Pistols and all the mainstream stuff, but they had that photo of this band, Suicide Commandos. And I said, oh, those guys look sort of sort of kooky and fun. I should pick that album up. It was end capped at the record store, so I bought it. And that sort of tied in with getting, you know, getting my underprivileged scholarship to McAllister. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, when I go to St. Paul now, I, there's a band I can go see. And I started up at McAllister in September of 78, and the first weekend I got there, the Commandos were playing at the Longhorn, and I think it may have been one of their final shows. You know, when I got to, you know, McAllister, my first objective was to get a fake ID, because I was 17. Yeah. And then I saw in the paper, I think it was the reader, that the Commandos were playing at this place called the Longhorn, so I figured out... Take the Snelling bus to university. Take the university bus down to down to Longhorn and drink my flask of Thunderbird on the <laughs> bus on the way down. <laughs> Get all ready for some punk rock and, mm-hmm. and sure, you know. And I just walked into the Longhorn. It was the you know first time I'd been in a punk rock club in the Twin Cities. I that first time I'd been in a punk rock club. Yes. And it was just crazy, you know, going those big doors and you take those few steps down and I was like, where am I? And it was just, it was pretty magical. It was pretty great. It was as, you know, it was equal to, you know, to seeing the Ramones open for Iggy Pop when I was a senior in high school. And I just was like, wow, this is, this, this is home for me. I'll, I'll be here every weekend. The Suicide Commandos were the Twin Cities foundational punk rock band led by guitarist and singer Chris Osgood, who spoke to the current Andrea Swenson. I remember him being at those shows, of course, and, and after I knew him, you know, I, I recognized him in the audience. So that's very sweet. That's, that's nice of him to say. I, there, Grant said a funny thing to me one time, that, that he became a commando fan and was really pleased um, to know that a drummer could sing. Uh-huh. And he, when he saw Dave all drumming and singing at the same time, he went, hey, wait a minute, I could do that too. Like Grant and Greg, Bob became a Longhorn regular. Here's Bob again. I mean, the suburbs were, I think, the next night or the next weekend. And, mm-hmm. you know, they were equally amazing. You know, it's a, you know, a different, a little stylistically, a little different, but, you know, equally as crazy and fun. And, um, yeah. you know, it just kept going from there. You know, that was, that was, that was my first month in, in St. Paul was, you know, taking, taking that bus over to, to the Longhorn every night, every weekend night. My other bus pilgrimage was the Lake Street bus to go over to Orfolk. Right. You know, which for, for people who don't remember Orfolk Jokopus was on 26th and Lindale. And I would go over there and I would I would round up friends and we would go. And I would go in and grab NME, Melody Maker, and Sounds. And I would go sit on that radiator Yes. Shelf, and I would just read the reviews you know, in the back, you know, just read every review and see what singles or what albums might appeal to me. Oh, there's, you know, there's the GBH single and, oh, there's the Dickies single and, mm-hmm. oh, there's, you know, all these, you know, bands that I would read about. And, 
spend you know 15 20 bucks which at the time was a lot yeah. but you could you could buy a handful of imports with that and then you know get on the bus and you know stop at the liquor store you know on the way back and tear up the dorm with you know my new punk rock this was the first few weeks maybe the first month of you know being at McAllister and it, you know it just seemed like I was on the bus and at the Longhorn in Norfolk more than I was at class <laughs> McAllister College wasn't the only place Bob Mould was taking classes. At the instrument shop, New Coupe, the Suicide Commando's Chris Osgood taught guitar lessons, and not long after he arrived, Bob Mould signed up for them. Chris Osgood picks up the story with the current's Andrea Swenson. Bob had found me because of the, the little flyers that I put up in grocery stores saying, talking about the New Wave Academy of Applied Guitar Sciences, which meant my apartment. And uh, he gave me a call. You know, the phone rang, as it did in those days. And uh, Bob wanted to come over and take guitar lessons. And so he started doing that. And he would get off the bus. I lived at 24th and Pillsbury, and I actually lived in the servants' quarters of the Hudson Mansion there, way up three flights of stairs, up in the garret, you know, in the in the attic part of the house. And so Bob would get off the bus, lug his Flying V guitar, the three flights of stairs up, and uh, we would go ahead and needle drop and, you know, listen to, which is, you know, how I taught people in those days, who do you want to play like, what do you want to hear? And then I taught people how to teach themselves, really. That was, that was my style for many years. And Bob was the first one. And then quickly thereafter, I met um, Greg and Grant. And I think I met them in situ um, over at Northern Lights in St. Paul, where they were clerking. Very, very early on, and I became friends with um, all three of them, but certainly starting with Bob. He came over about four or five times. And we, um, whatever we were listening to, I don't remember what it was. I'm sure it's stuff that he brought because that was sort of the the rule of it after the first lesson. Bob had a immediate facility for everything. You know, I don't know if he'd taken lessons before or what was going on, but he made his way around his Ibanez Flying V guitar with alacrity. And after that fourth or fifth lesson, I just said, Bob, you run along. It's time for you to start a band. I had a couple of other great students in Craig Finn and Dave Perner, and they were both like that. I first met Grant at Cheapo Records, which was just down the street from campus over in St. Paul. It was, uh, you know, just on Grand, just below Snelling. Mm-hmm. I remember just walking by, and there was this, you know, half a PA out in front of this record store. And I think I think you might have been playing like Perubu Modern Dance, and I just went in, and there's you know this this sort of hippie looking guy, you know, barefoot guy in there, you know, just like what's up, you know, and you know, I just said, oh, like your choice of music, and you know, we got to we got to talking, and then we got to you know put in the back in ten minutes sign on the store so we could go down and smoke some pot mm-hmm. in the basement, and. You know, he's like, he was like, oh, I, you play anything? I said, yeah, I play guitar. He's like, oh, yeah, I bet. He's like, I play drums. I play keyboards. I play everything. Mm-hmm. I said, well, I play guitar. And he's like, yeah, I want to see you play guitar. So I don't know if it was that day or maybe the next day he came by the dorm and I just had, I had the Flying V and a little, a little Mike Matthews Dirt Road special, you know, 112 portable amp that I brought with me from, from Malone. I, you know, played some Thunders riffs, played some Ramones riffs and stuff. He's like, oh, 
yeah, you could play. We should do something. We should get together and play. Mm-hmm. I know that. I, and, he, and he said, I, you know, I got this friend that works at at uh, Northern Lights down on University, and I, and he, and he sort of plays bass. So, you know, maybe we should all get together. And that's the the very very humble beginnings of Husker Du. And there was never a thought of a second guitar player. Just no, because the commandos, commandos right. were three-piece. Right, Ramon, Ramon's had one guitar. Why, why mess it up? Go! This has been part one of Do You Remember, a podcast about Husker Du. In our next episode, Bob Grant and Greg become a band start playing around town, and develop a loyal following. Everything they did was, was in fast motion. You know, their creativity, moving on, having a bunch of songs, leaving a few of those behind, moving on to some new songs, just like they did later on in SST, playing stuff that, from a record that's not really even out yet, when people are expecting stuff from the record previous. That was Terry Katzman early sound man and co-founder of Reflex Records, the band's early label. You'll hear more from him as well as the band on the next episode. Do You Remember was written by Michelangelo Matos, edited by Anna Reed, produced by David Safar, engineered by Michael DeMarc, and directed by Brett Baldwin. Brian Oak and Andrea Swenson contributed interviews to this episode. Special thanks to our guests and the members of Husker Du. You can find most of the music from this episode on Savage Young Du from the Numero Group. This podcast is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. I'm Mary Lucia. This is Do You Remember from The Current. Do you remember? Do you remember? Thanks, Grant.